Welcome to the Radical Self-Belief Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Fogdenmore, the Mojo Maker, and this is your ultimate destination for candid, essential, inspiring advice to get you in the driver's seat of life. Discover exclusive leadership insights, plus proven practical tools and techniques to activate true conscious decision-making for extraordinary results. Reignite your vision, harness effortless energy as we guide you to truly be the CEO of your life as well as your business for absolute sustainable success. and welcome back. I'm Nikki Fogdemore. This is Radical Self-Belief, the Mojo Maker podcast and YouTube channel. Been a hot minute. We're now in 2022. Can you believe it? Heading into season four of the show. If you haven't already liked and subscribed, moving over from the original platform, we've now got new show links. You can find out more on NikkiFogdemore.com or you can follow, subscribe, like. We'd love your feedback on all podcast platforms, of course. And before I get into introducing the hot seat guest for today's show, I want to remind you that your topics and comments we take really seriously in terms of what you want to hear about. This is not going to be just a conversation that has you dipping off and falling asleep halfway through. We want you to take away one, two, or three main points that can have some radical impact on tiny habits you can change for a sustainable future. And also there's always show notes and links to this episode where you can find out more about my guests and special offers for book and the new Radical Self-Belief online program. So without further ado, I have one of my favorite all-time humans on the planet. It's not very often that you get to meet someone that founds an integrated energy oil and gas company along with their wife and has kept a team of around 35 staff, which is incredibly boutique, the type of production operation they have. So I'd like to welcome CEO and founder of Bridgeport Energy, Chris Way, here live in his hot seat from Sydney as I'm sitting up here virtually socially distancing in Noosa. Chris, welcome. Well, thank you, Nikki. How's the surf up there? Well, it's been pretty manic up here. We've had that massive cyclone run through, so we've had big swell, some pretty horrific weather. I think this is the first day in two weeks that we haven't had rain, Chris. Yeah, well, it's, it's been our way as well. We've had quite a bit down this way, so the surf's been good, and uh, it's been a relatively relaxing uh, Christmas except, of course, the COVID outbreak, the Omicron variant that's hurting us badly. But uh, Well, you know, part of the landscape. I hope it's not another year. I was in my diary the other day and realized that I started a file called COVID, or sorry, my email. I started a file called COVID and it started 2020 and now here we are in the third year. So it's, uh, it's been persistent. It is. And I think, you know, it's just part of our lives at the moment. So we have to focus on what we can make the most of. And and one of those good stories that I'm thrilled to be bringing a little bit more to a more general audience is this, the great aspect of what I call the business of energy and integrated energy, something at Bridgeport that's not very often you get to see under the hood or behind the scenes with energy companies creating oil and gas. We have a lot of stigma around it. A lot of pictures come to mind. We talk about oil and gas, and one of the things that I've loved with working with you for the past decade is that you actually practice what you preach, and there's a good feel-good story about what's happening for sustainable energy practices that will have us in a much better position if we're all prepared to do the right thing. So Chris, before we dive in, I think it'll be really interesting to give our listeners and viewers just your elevator introduction to the fact that not only did you found an oil and gas company along with your wife in 2008, 
you're an avid sailor, a world champion sailor, and you've been in this industry way back when from grassroots. So, so give us a couple of points of your CV uh, of why on earth something motivated you to set up an oil and gas company and you decided to do that here in Australia. Thanks, Nikki. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, proposition to start an energy company. I guess it comes from the depth of having worked in it for now 40 years. You don't get the credentials to start an energy company like this where we produce oil and gas and water uh, as part of that and manage that environmental situation without having had the depth of working for some of the majors. I, I've worked for ESSO and in Australia, quite a few of the small entities, smaller end entities, uh, some got quite large like Ampelex, which was bought by Mobile in the late 90s, and then Rock Oil, which was the one company I worked for with a very uh, well-renowned CEO, John Doran, who was well-known in the industry and a real entrepreneur. And if you will, I understudied with him and we developed some fields offshore WA, worked internationally in West Africa and UK. And I guess that just set me up for what became natural at the end of Rock Oil when they were bought by an Austrian oil company to start this business. And, and uh, we started it with a different plan. Now. And I think that's starting to come to fruition now. And I think that is just a really great point to drop the pin on. The plan was you started it with a different vision and your wife is a geologist. Uh, you've always both your whole families into sustainability, you know, the planet. Uh, we're all, we've always got on that main point of making sure that we looked after and nurtured everything. So the three things that we started working on together in the discussion was investment, integrity, and integrated energy approach. Because normally now, even when you look at putting uh, super managed funds or stocks and shares and investing, everyone wants to shy away from the bad oil and gas, energy, coal, everything else. Which So it's really got a wrap from you know, spills and everything else and things that have gone wrong. And there hasn't been a lot of light shed on the fact that whilst we want to avoid having anything to do with said banned type of companies, there's actually a lot of good that's happening in the industry to pull back into the environment, back into communities and to working, as you say, with, you know, water distillation, uh, getting crops and things back for farmers, sharing a better sustainable approach and doing the right thing as a business. Why do you think it's so hard to get that message across that companies like yourself actually are practicing what they preach and are doing the right thing? Um, I think I, it's hard to put your finger on it exactly, but I think a lot of it stems from uh, possibly a, a reduced capacity for science. There's so much coming at us from every corner that without a degree in science of some sort or, or some definitely post high school training, everything that comes at you, you, you have to believe because Google's always right. And there's, a, you know, for every conversation is an alternate conversation. So uh, the oil industry hasn't done itself any favors, the oil and gas industry. And laterally, the gas industry has started to improve. We're part of that gas industry as well. So it's all really for us, one business, whether you Santos, Woodside, Exxon, BP, but we're all moving towards gas away from oil. And I can explain that um, shortly. But the fundamental problem is that over the years, right since the Exxon Valdez, which ran aground four decades ago uh, in Alaska, polluting that environment, that, you know, the tendency of oil companies has been to push it on any disaster underneath the table. That's not unusual. You saw that with Qantas when they had that problem with the first um, large uh, the Airbus 380 when that piece fell off that and they almost crash landed 
you know, crashed that plane. And that was, uh, you know, a lot of cover up that does happen. And it happens because, you know, clients or companies don't want to lose their brand. So Exxon didn't want to lose their brand when the Valdez went aground and uh, and spilled in Alaska. But in the end, they lost complete brand recognition because of that. So I think companies now are more aware of their brand and the social media allows reporting of events before even the company often knows about it. Qantas was a classic with the Airbus 380. The social media knew before their own operations manager in Melbourne knew they had a problem. Similarly with the uh the disaster, the Macondo disaster in, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, that was all known by social media before it was known even by the company and, and a disaster response could occur. So we've been we've been our own worst enemy. We we have roughly every ten years, hopefully not into the future, but roughly every ten years the industry has a major event and that puts bad light on, on what we do. The basic product, however, is necessary to everyday life. It's yeah. as necessary as the iron ore that Fortescue mines and as necessary as the copper, uh, the BHP mines. So just to pause you on that, let's just give a bit of context around, you know, one of the things we talk about the fact, yes, it's even like COVID with the vaccines at the moment. Nobody really knows all the information because we're not doctors. We're not scientists. We have to rely on what's being fed to us. One of the things that we did in the recent video, we went out west, out back west into you know, where a lot of the inland plants are, the oil and gas plants, one of them being the most original one in Australia, is the real life contribution that you're making to regenerate existing resources and hardware, giving back into the communities, and then the battle that you have to actually show that you're doing the right thing and getting people to believe it. So the context is that we are still using iron ore, petroleum products, even in wetsuits and other things. Our everyday lives require this oil and gas production. So what happens for me to go and tank up my car, even, you know, we'll talk about the electric vehicle discussion on part two, but just take a listener and a viewer through in a very short way, the journey, the fact that even by listening to this, our computers, everything is made up from a byproduct of these very core materials and minerals that are coming from the earth. That's right. Now, I, I really encourage viewers to, to read a lot of Attenborough's books, particularly his most recent one, which is his statement on probably his, you know, end of near end of life uh, statement on, on, on the state of the planet. And, you know, we, we, we need to be informed by people such as that who are well known. And you, you'll find in that that indeed he is a proponent of fossil fuels until such time as we can get beyond fossil fuels. And, and we know that that transition can take a long time. Um, but just to explain how the fossil fuel game works, uh, you know, in periods when there's been high CO2 in the in the atmosphere, we've had a lot of plant growth. Those plants die. They become ultimately uh, uh, fossils and, and, and generate hydrocarbons in that process as the plant materials typically on onshore. I'm talking onshore because that's where we are. But offshore in a marine environment, same idea. All the plankton and everything settles to the uh, and other marine detritus settles to the bottom of the seabed and then over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, scales that we can't even imagine in our own mind, that becomes pressured and turns into a hydrocarbon and oil. I don't have a sample in my office here. But, uh, gonna, but, you're going to go behind you and grab a fossil. So that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll, we could put some images up in the, in the thing. So, yeah. so these, these, these so, are so that, part of the Earth's 
So, yeah, so in the Jurassic period, you've all seen that the Jurassic Park is an example. That's one period that uh, we can produce oil from. We drill wells to now that Jurassic period. Rock is buried at depth where we are. It could be three to two to 3,000 meters. We drill down, we tap into that reservoir, and we pull that oil out of the ground. Now, that sounds like a simple process, but you're managing pressure and, and temperature and volatility. So, hence, fires, explosions can be a can be a, and have been a real risk historically in the oil and gas business, much less so today because of technology, but certainly in the early days of the uh, oil business, a lot of famous blowouts where pieces of pipe blow out in the air and, yeah. and, uh, and fires in the Middle East. So, so that's your oil production side. When you're talking about oil production, I know how people are going to listen to this and they say, you know, drilling into the earth's surface and, you know, there's an immediate, you know, metaphorical response and reaction to raping and pillaging the earth and blowing things up. And now we've got certain seismic testing that is interrupting whale breeding grounds, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got an issue of perception at the moment. And I think when you talk about getting, finding the crude, finding the oil, finding the source of the gas, the one thing I want to focus on is your environmental commitment as a company was quite astounding when I was out there on limiting the footprint of extracting, finding, and sourcing those materials and then keeping that in a nurturing way. The, you know, we have a barren images that are presented to us of the, the pumps, right, across many, many countries. But what I noticed with Bridgeport is that I went to your sites and it was full of plants and cows grazing and it was just yeah. it was a very integrated approach. So when you talk about that blowing things up, it naturally it turns people off. And I think that the purpose of this discussion is, and then we'll put pictures with this, is to show these new ways to do things now. Let's go back in history because I always find that history doesn't repeat, but it does give, give us a chance to see how the society has responded to its energy needs. And that, that is the business of energy. So before the oil industry in 1837, you know, I'm sure your readers know, but what was the principal source of, um, of energy for uh, for uh, lights in Boston and, and Europe. Wasn't that like whales? What was that? I've got no, I think it was whale oil, wasn't it? Wasn't that was where they were, that's why we had this terrible harvesting of, of, and now they're coming back, of course, of whales. So that was the original source of, of energy consumption was the whaling industry. Yep. So the industrial revolution began with coal. Coal mining was used to manufacture stuff, but in terms of light, in the streets of Boston or the streets of London, it was whale oil. And 1837, the first oil, underground oil, you know, was found in Pennsylvania. And, and that began a trajectory of change for the oil and gas industry. The neonatal energy game, which you drilled into the ground and you found oil and it was free. Nobody understood environmental impacts whatsoever. There was never, you know, it was, hey, here's this free oil on the ground. Let's turn it in instead of buying whale oil. Interestingly, we see also during that time, if you watch the Moby Dick movie, um, you'll find that there was a, an OPEC equivalent in Boston that was controlling the price of whale oil. And so we see that today where OPEC controls the price of oil because they control the majority of production in the world out of 100 million barrels a day. They represent about uh, 15% of that on, on any given day, OPEC, maybe up to 20 to 30 at, at, at other periods. So, so they control the market the same as the Boston traders controlled the whale oil market back in the 1800s. Now, the next question is, how long did it take for whale oil to disappear for whaling as an industrial 
commodity, nor Japan's efforts today to convince their population that they should be eating whale flesh. Let's ignore that. How long did it take for industrial whaling to stop? Well, you know, you're asking the wrong person here because I'm terrible at history. Uh, the answer the answer is 100 years. I mean, 1930s was when, and I can, in fact, it was even later than that because I can remember growing up in eastern Canada, going with my grandfather down to the, to the coast where there was whaling areas and they drag, I'm still appalled me at seven years old. So that would have been in the 90, early 60s. You know, seeing that, like, it's still an image in my mind of this, whale being pulled up by the tail and and the blood and the guts and the whole thing it was just and and so that was in in, in eastern canada argentina only just shut down whale whaling as an industrial support in the uh you know uh, like five six years ago i you know don't quote me on that date but it, it you know it's it, and japan still tries to get its population to eat it so god knows why so the bottom line is that to transition out takes a long time now you could argue that we're smarter than we were in the 1800s however <laughs> i think i'm going to leave that comment just over there <laughs> hmm. maybe in some areas maybe not all but, but well i think i think the other part of that though is that in since the 1800s the population has now grown to be 8 billion from you know 500 million or a billion i have to look back to see what the population was in 1830 so so scale becomes your problem again there yeah. was never a sustainable pathway for whale oil there's never a long, going to be a long-term sustainable pathway for oil and gas because it's extractive. You know, yeah. we run the same risk on iron ore. We run the same risk on copper. Um, so, and that's basically why we're on the show today is to talk about the fact that there has to be an integrated approach, you know, an and overlap. And this is one of the things when you started the company in 2008 and something we've been trying to get through in the messaging, a lot of the more scientific discussions we've been having is what are the practical ways that we bring to life and look under the hood an in integrated flow? We can't just turn the switches off and say, right, once we've restored everything, then the power comes back on because people still want to get their food, their vegetables. They still want to fly to Tahiti. They still want to do all these things. Mm. So we must all look at a integrated approach, which is progress, not perfection. And that means balancing awareness with integrity for operations and the requirements of our energy based on this population, which is exactly what at Bridgeport you're doing with the integrated approach. Could you give a couple of examples of what integrated energy looks like on an operational perspective from Bridgeport, such as the fact that water is part of the productivity in your operations? Yeah, so I've long held that water shortage in the world is going to become more and more of a crisis as we enter the 30s, 40s, 2030s and 40s, and and that's a population function. Whether it's potable water or water for cropping, you know, we're struggling to make to, to meet the plant the, the planet's um, uh, food needs today. Let alone where we'll be in 15 years. Hence the advent of, of um, you know lab grown meats and, and alternative vegan products, which you know we know that vegan products use less waters. But that's that's not what our business is about. Our business was always about buying and started with buying older oil fields and repurposing them so how do we repurpose them we bring them back to life to make production because we need to live off cash flow so our earnings for our business come from oil today we've also had an exploration portfolio where we're looking for the next product of the future which is gas now gas has been around for a long time but not as long as oil and it's probably not as versatile as oil it 
gas is more of a uh, a town gas supply like whale oil was the it was the town light supply uh, you know gas becomes more of a town gas supply for your cooker cook stops and 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 whatnot and and for electricity generation it's highly wasteful electricity generation there should be something better for electricity generation because we will run out of gas eventually so gas is but it is a cleaner burning fuel so as we go up from oil from coal to oil to gas to nuclear we go from the, the carbon output goes down to yeah. zero with nuclear and renewables and and one of the things that is really interesting like for example at Mooney which is one of the outback Queensland plants you have is that you're you've got one of the original plants you know oil plants in Australia and all the original hardware is there but as a company you have a mission to reutilize um, the pipes the systems the whole that's right we have some of the oldest generators in the country London diesel for example yeah and I've got photos of this I'll put the video (laughs) and all the photos up but this is the point, Chris. You know, we're having a conversation around a huge contentious issue where everyone wants to get on their soapbox and say how terrible it is. But I don't believe we're shedding light on the good things that companies like yourself are trying to do in the interim to make sure that we can still turn our lights on. We can still have social media talk about how bad it all is. So yeah. we need to turn everything around and really show, for example, the ponds. So the fact that extracting water out through the process of creating the oil ready to use that gets transported for us to actually use in our day-to-day lives. We've got these beautiful big ponds and those ponds are full of crystal clear water with wildlife on them. And Mm -hmm. we want to ensure that farmers know those, that water is pure and ready to use for stock, for livestock and everything else. But how do we make sure that your message gets across that the water that is being distilled and utilized through that process is actually something you can go back into communities. Yeah, so good question. I mean, we just to explain again to your to your, your listeners how the oil works. Oil and water reside together at depth, so that water comes out with the oil. And right now, we're producing roughly eighty percent oil and twenty percent. I pardon me, twenty percent oil, eighty percent water, and sometimes up to ninety percent water in both our fields. So that water is left uh, to evaporate in ponds that was historically what happened i've seen that for the last 10 years as a as a waste of a resource it's coming from underground there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it it just needs to be cleaned up with uh, regard to stripping chlorides out of it salts for those who know what chloride is and and so those that clean water can be then used and is used today for stock watering out west particularly drought periods western fields out near aramanga Kopi, we we provide water to the landowner and, and that helps keep their stock alive through the drought period. Either that or they destock all the way to the east and, right. and that's a hugely expensive proposition for them. There's some out there that would say we shouldn't be watering cattle because meat should be shut down. But unfortunately, that debate is, is coming along well behind where the oil and gas industry finds itself today. And by providing that water to the community to a business that's growing uh, cattle, then then that's that's a viable outcome. The other thing that we're doing, which is, is getting a solar-driven uh, distillation process rather than the membrane-driven, which is a like the filter in your house, we're using a uh, solar distillation methodology that we're just uh, bringing. We brought in from Florida, 37 meters, so 100-foot-long solar array that will take the produced water through a vacuum tube and then turn that into distilled water for potable water. So this is 
pure water. It's actually not drinkable. You have to actually add fluoride back like the, like the Sydney water does for us here. Or well, that, water that's here. another myth, isn't it? Everyone says they want pure water, but that will actually kill you if you drink pure water. Right. Yeah, <laughs> so, water is not potable for long. Yeah, exactly. You know, I just drew this little diagram as you're talking. I, I call this the sweet spot. Like this is utopia, right? This is where we all want to be. You know, and that's why I love working. And even BP, BHP, Santos, like everyone in the industry, we all want utopia. As humans, we want utopia. And, and, and my wife's down at our cottage called utopia. So there yeah. You. <laughs> so what, what I'm trying to do by bringing this discussion up with you is talking about the sweet spot, which is, you know, the horrendous way we used to do things and declining the the harmful, degenerative, misinformed because we didn't know and realizing that there's a lot of knowledge now that is bringing a regeneration, a reintegration, an opportunity and a linear approach to utopia. We can't, you, know, there, we, you can't just turn something off. It's like getting fit and healthy. You know, I've started running again and um, I don't know if you saw I had a snake in my yoga mat. That was my motivation. But it's, you can't just go from zero to hero. You have to have steps in place. So one of the things that I want to do with you, Chris, is create a bit of a linear approach where we put some things in and we actually create a picture in people's heads that the sweet spot does exist. And we're actually right in the middle of it, I think, now listening to, you know, a lot of the energy companies that I talk to and yourselves is it might not be perfect, but we're working towards an integrated approach, which is we can't give up where we're at and we can't go back. But what we are doing is using science and community and integrity to do the right thing as much as we can. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the first thing to understand is that uh, what society will take and won't take. And to t- again, to go back to history, let's remember the 1973 oil shock when people were shooting themselves, to shooting others in the lineup to get coupons so they could fill their car. Because frankly, what's more important, the two-rack tractor going to uh, take the kids to school or the courier that needs to put food on his plate. And that becomes a societal decision when there's an energy crisis. Google 1973 all shock. Look at the shocking pictures in New York City, people being held at gunpoint to get coupons so they could fill their cars. And that's where we'll end up if we turn but- off the oil today. We're going to end up with people deciding that their delivery of their children to school is more important than the delivery of the courier that's going to get paid put food on the table. So, you know, those are the choices that we end up putting ourselves into with a oil crisis, and we don't want that. Well, I, and I think... That's a fundamental society need is energy. We've got a fundamental society need of bridging the gap with energy, which is... But we've also got a couple of other historical things here in Australia, such as the blackouts in Adelaide and the fact that a lot of our original generators and backup facilities were shut down completely not maintained or functional because we can't just rely on one thing or two things. So an integrated approach to energy and what you're saying with the FDU unit, with making farmers communities more aware that instead of letting water evaporate from oil production, that is going to happen whether we like it or not, because you want to drive somewhere. We can't all ride horses over to West Australia. You can't fly to see relatives. But as a, a conscious person who loves the environment, I'm very interested in supporting companies who are doing the right thing, such as Bridgeport, and making sure that we give two sides of the story in media now that show while we take out 20% oil, 80% of the water that comes from that process can be booked back into our communities. And I should say the third thing that we're looking at with that water is, is taking the distilled water, which has got no, nothing in it, not potable, 
and turning that into green into hydrogen using electrolyzers and solar power. So, you know, hydrogen becomes if I go down that carbon pathway again, you know, where coal's up in the left, high carbon footprint with nuclear at the bottom with zero, hydrogen also is at zero. Yeah, hydrogen has no carbon footprint. It can have carbon footprint in manufacturing it if you make it from methane. But when you make it from water, it doesn't have an associated methane, so uh, associated carbon footprint. So, so that's the difference between what they call blue hydrogen, which is coming from methane, and green hydrogen, which is coming from pure water. Now, you got to be careful too, because green hydrogen isn't all green. If it take if it's going to take you six thousand acres of solar panels to make this, how are you going to argue that that's actually green? We're going to be using solar panels. So we're going to be calling it green. But we actually, the, the footprint to make those 6,000 acres of panels to build, to mine the lithium, or not to, well, if we're using batteries of lithium, but to mine the uh, graphite and the, the carbon to be able to make the panels, the glass, the, the plastics, all takes a footprint. So we have to be careful when we talk about what's green and what isn't green. Yeah. You know, even, <laughs> even renewables isn't green. A, a nuclear power plant isn't green because all the steel and products that have had to go into making that are, are going to have an oil-based or carbon-based footprint. We just haven't got an answer yet for all the mining. And I think the other thing, if I could just let people know that out of the 100 million barrels a day that we produce, and there's 158 liters in a barrel, so you run the maths, it's big numbers. You're taking day, you're per day. globally. Are you taking globally? Globally. globally yep. I just wanted to million. put that in globally, yep. Globally, 100 million barrels a day. About one third of it goes to passenger, uh, to, well, I call it to, uh, heavy fuel. So these planes, are yeah. uh, for planes, to for, for vessels on the sea to transport your online products, for jet craft to transport your online products and passengers and so forth. About 15% goes into passenger vehicles. And that's where we're, you know, so far out of that 15%, about 1% is take up for EVs. So it's a very small part. It's, go, it's growing and we want to see EVs on the road, but not if it's, they're going to be dr- driven off coal-fired power plants. Well, and also, I mean, I mean, that's why I said we need to do part two of this discussion because we want to talk about electric mm-hmm. vehicles, batteries, recharging, you know, the new technology coming out of China now where you get a 500,000 kilometres out of one battery, you know, all sorts of things. The electric vehicle graveyard in France, X, Y, Z. So I just want to like take that and pop that over for episode two. But what I do want to talk about is our search for utopia and the fact that if you're listening to this and your mind's already got so confused, that's the whole point is that no matter where you look, you will end up confused because there is no exact science to the sweet spot right now. But what we need to remember is that there is a determined progress. There are steps in place where there is an integrated approach to energy, whether it's oil, gas, hydrogen, and all of that will rely on a multiple of energy supply sources, whether it's extraction as well as using energy from the sun. You know, there's just, we have to have a collective and integrated approach to energy, which is what Bridgeport Energy are doing, even down to the fact of how you set up your inland sites, the low footprint, and we'll provide photos for all of this. But the awareness of the other thing is if people really like this discussion, if we were to go on the Bridgeport Energy website, everything else, because of how everything's set up right now, you can't actually fact find too much around this infogram so maybe we should create something chris which which kind of denotes this linear approach to utopia yeah. 
and yeah, and, and something together. Somebody, I, I get approached daily by marketing companies and we don't market because our crew gets sold to where BP in Singapore or in, 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 in Australia, our Australian crew for the Outback that we operate goes to IOR, which is a locally based refinery in Aramanga. So why would I market? I think what oil companies are starting to realize now that they do need to market how their product is used for good, but, you know, and we need to be all working towards the use of uh, our produced water for hydrogen. Yeah. You know, as to how we drive the energy intensive electrolyzers that will change that water from H2O to just hydrogen and put out oxygen as part of that uh, stream. You know, that's the debate. Do we put in 6,000 acres of panels? Do we put in gas driven turbines to make that energy? You know, I, I guess at the end of the day, we, we, that's what's challenging industry today is continuing to be able to generate that level of power that's needed. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing that I also, I mean, I'm encouraging everybody right now to get solar panels on their roofs because the more you can do to reduce your footprint of energy consumption from the grid, the better. Now, you don't have to go the full hog and put $10,000 worth of Tesla batteries in. That's up to your own personal view of lithium batteries and their life and cost. But really, this isn't a, you know, to put solar panels on your roof to be able to have cheaper, lower demand power during the day is probably a good thing because it's forcing the generators to come up with a plan. That plan could be everything from large scale batteries to retaining some of the spinning power that sits in coal fired uh, power plants today. But we also need to, you know, I guess the challenge for your listeners is to say, if you could have a coal-fired power plant, what's that utopia? And that, co- that to me, that utopia is one where it makes no CO2. And that's feasible today. We can, gen- you know, low-emission coal-fired generators are feasible. Coal is in so much abundance that we've got, you know, five, 600 years of supply. So if we can put sequestration sites underneath those coal-fired power plants or nearby, then, and that becomes a commitment by those generators to be able to continue to provide supply the same way as you should be demanding <clears throat> that the uh, coals and woolies don't plastic coat the plastic, uh, don't put all the veggies in plastic. Yeah. your vital choice. So yeah. if you could have a zero CO2 output coal fire power plant, that's where we should also be. Going. We can use that. We can sequester that CO2 forever. Yeah, That's what so, we do. We put things underground. So I that, think that's another area we're working on. You know, and I think the thing that, you know, the dichotomy that you have when you're so inside this industry, you know, is that your internal heartbeat is all the details, the information, and you can go down and into the minutia of everything. But some of these words, people just get lost. They're like, does that mean I can start my car in the morning? And can I turn my computer on? And or I want to well, have... I, a I, think if you're driving a, I think if you're driving an electric car, you want to think twice about where the power to that plug comes from. Well, exactly. If that comes in Queensland from coal-fired power plants, then you're kidding yourself. If it comes in South Australia from solar arrays, then probably wiser to drive an EV. Uh, so, here in, in New yeah. South Wales, we're half and half, you know. And, and so what I'd like to do is, with your permission, first of all, provide a connection that maybe people can have a conversation with you on LinkedIn and we can get Absolutely. more of a dialogue. Or perhaps if you're listening to this and we've just sparked enough interest because we've thrown a lot of information at you guys, for you to go, well, hold on a second, I, don't, I, I thought it was like this, but it sounds like there's so many integrated approaches and things that are happening right now. I want to know more. Leave us your questions, drop them under YouTube in the comments, 
email Nikki at NikkiFogdemore.com. Drop it in the blog comments. I don't mind. Chris and I will provide a way to get back to you. And if you want to have a conversation with Chris as the CEO of the company, then go on to LinkedIn and connect with Chris Way there. I will put his details there, Chris, but I just want this to be the beginning to, to set the scene to say that all hope is not lost. In fact, quite the contrary. And that's why I love working with visionary leaders like yourself. Most often or not, 100% of the people I work with are so busy doing the job well that they're not out in the public eye. They're not talking about it because you're busy worrying about how to put food back on society's table in generations to come, how to make sure that we have wildlife roaming free in this planet. As a fan of David Attenborough and the beautiful series on Netflix at the moment, Our Planet as well, there are so many options. But if we decide to focus on what has gone wrong, then we don't have the energy to focus on what's actually happening that's going right. And this is a great example with Bridgeport Energy of what is going right with a small team of 35 employees that are all so vested in the longevity of this planet. You know, the fact that you've got the same staff that have been there a decade from the bones of the business right through to celebrating 12 years is a testimony to you and your hard times. I know that we often laugh and say that there's a lot of Calvinism going on in the leadership there, but I think that true grit, determination and rolling your sleeves up approach is what's given the longevity and the tenacity for Bridgeport to survive unprecedented times and be a beacon in the business of energy on how integrated approaches are happening. It's just that we don't hear about it. So if you want to hear from Chris and ask us your questions, we would welcome that. We'd welcome an open debate to talk about hydrogen, to talk about the FDU unit, how actually we can use more plants, hardware and existing facilities for better reasons and resources now. The difference between coal, oil and gas, why we need a different approach. And if you do want to do solar, how to make good decisions around what is the impact and the footprint of that and how you can get involved in being part of Utopia as well. So Chris, one sweet spot comment. What's one thing you're most proud of at the moment that Bridgeport as a team really showcase inside an industry that is being battered and bruised and trying to claw its way back to show that everything, the money that you know BP and BHP have to pour back into doing the right thing is also a very interesting discussion because a lot of people that say, you should be doing the right thing, don't have the cash flow and the reserves to actually create a bigger footprint on the right thing. So whilst the footprint for what was wrong was there, companies that do have the cash flow are spending on doing the right thing. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, 100%. There's no, no companies in this country or, or in non-third world countries that are, you know, that are uh, not doing the right thing. We're, we can't attract employees if we don't do the right thing. And that, that's a selfish statement, but it's the reality. If you want a good mechanical engineer, you want a good geologist, you better have a, an ESG, Environmental Social Governance Plan. You know, we think ours is second to none. I'm sure BP thinks theirs is second to none as well. I wouldn't ever put myself on the same stage as them because we don't have the capital to do what they do. But in our own small way, we're innovative. And I think that's what's made me most proud of this group is how innovative the team has been from Barry and Lorna through to, you know, Cam and and, uh, and our ops team uh, headed by Brian. So, you know, I think I think that team is really embraced because they really believe in the change. The other thing I think that's, I haven't actually talked to you about this, but COP26 last year came out with some very good initiatives around investing in carbon credits. And uh, I think your, your listeners as investors who probably want to invest at times in, in only green products should be looking at that. 
company here called Veridius Capital that's going to be putting a fund together. They're raising money now, and they'll be they're getting using international certifying agency out of New York that certifies seventy percent of carbon capture projects for World Bank and MDS, MDB, and all the others. We're getting our projects certified as well, so that when you come say to invest in in a, one of our green projects, uh, carbon capture or the hydrogen project at at Bridgeport, you'll know that it'll have that stamp, that certificate that says. Right. What you're getting has international certification. And I think that's going to help everybody unravel this whole concept with COP26. It's going to help everybody unravel, should I be putting my money into saving a rainforest in Borneo, or should I be putting my money into something that's going to capture carbon in the oldest oil field in uh, Queensland, which is PL1 like ours. Everybody has a choice, but the whole idea is that the, the international agencies will start to accredit these yeah. Uh, carbon credits. And if you don't think carbon credit is a growth industry, Scott Morrison was on before Christmas saying $20 a ton. That's now $50 a ton. His target through last year was $20 a ton maximum. We're now at $50 a ton for Australian carbon credits units. Yeah. Um, and internationally, it's going to be $130 a ton in Canada by 2030. So, you know, that's where people will get the confidence that the money that they put in is going to the right place and, and I, I think it's all cyclical as well you know we as a generation the bottom line for me is we have to consume less you know when i was growing up we didn't one blender lasted 50 Absolutely. Years. Buy, buy local put panels on your roof i mean you couldn't do any better than that you and know, we don't need 70 you don't have a choice unfortunately with your fuel supply because no. that all comes from internationally mostly here in australia it comes from singapore so you know, that, that comes in on big ships that are distributed through Viva and Geelong or, or uh, Caltex up in, up in Queensland, WA's Quinana. You know, they all distribute the refined products that you put in your car. We don't have control on that. As an oil, oil and gas producer, we just produce the oil that goes to that refinery. And there's only four refineries, three refineries left in Australia. So Australia's refining capacity has gone to almost zero. It, it, it still has that capacity just for security of supply. So, so you know, you can't do much about where you buy your fuel. It doesn't matter where you fill up at 7-Eleven, which is mobile, or fill up at Shell, which is Shell. You know, it, it's, it's coming from internationally, but you can certainly make a difference by buying local and, and in my view, putting panels on your roof to help, help your footprint. And I also think there's just a really practical tip, which is do you really need 50,000 pairs of sneakers and... You know, we're shipping 17 shampoo bottles. We have a lot of stuff. We've, you know, with COVID, everybody's wanted to kind of nurture and shop online. Do you really need it? We're a very excessive population where we, you know, the other day I got really shocked because someone said, I just want my freedom back. I just want to be able to go to a restaurant. And I understand that concept and I'm not belittling that, but I feel like we, we're so lucky. You know, there's so many countries where I don't walk out my front door and I'm not been shot at. I mean, I saw a big kangaroo the other day, but we, we've, we've lost perspective on suffering, I think. We haven't been through the dark times where there was no power for like weeks and months on end. You know, we've never had a big blackout. We've, we're, we're almost a bit spoiled. Don't, please don't give me a hard time if you're listening to this and you think you're there on your high horse because I'm not. I'm in the same sea that all of you guys are, but I think we consume to fill a gap rather than looking for quality things and getting back in nature with our kids and getting our own veggie gardens going, even if it's just a new windowsill. We've lost our ability to cultivate. 
So my biggest advice to anyone listening to this would be create before you can consume. Look at what you can reuse. Do you really need all that stuff? How can you streamline and have quality things and be part of the change rather than sitting there throwing shade at organizations that you're still tapping into because you want to go from A to B or your favorite restaurant or everything else? So I don't think there's any ideal perfection. I think we all can do our little bit, whether you're an oil and gas company like yourself, whether you have the capital like BP or BHP or Bridgeport, it's irrelevant. Every bit counts. And instead of jumping on the bandwagon of how terrible everything is, we can start to do one or two things in our own side of the street that contribute to utopia for us all. So Chris, I really look forward to sharing some show notes about today's episode, the video that we did which was just a tiny snippet. Pretty amazing. <laughs> There's so much more to share from the footage that we got. And I, and I can't wait to do those little sub videos around the FDU unit, around the ponds that were once evaporating water supplies that can now go back to livestock. Well, that'll be up. That'll be, uh, let's schedule out in the field in about, uh, about a month and a half. So, so that'll be, well, you know, get back. That'll, be a, that'll be a watershed moment for us because, you know, it does work. We know it works, but it's always different when you rig it up. We've got electrical standards for Australia now, not US, et cetera. So it's been a pathway to get it there. But like any new technology, the first one's the most expensive. And then I think we'll see the, the price coming down. I, I hope that in you know two years, you know, we're doing the first one in Australia. I hope that in two years, we'll see hundreds of these being rigged up at various oil companies' facilities around. Not that we're selling the product, we're, we're just using it for our own purposes, but I, I'd like to see that other oil companies doing the right thing with their water. And, well, I imagine those little FTU units, and I'll put a reference to what this is on the show notes, actually in, in community areas and in populated areas where we actually have them as sub kind of water distillation units that are powered and especially in high sunlight areas and everything else it's not just for a company usage i think it's for community uses too it's a great invention and i can't wait to be out there with my steel toe caps on uh, cap boots and my high hey, bits. Hey, hopefully when the weather is improved yeah <laughs> the rain is gone chris way ceo and founder of bridgeport energy Thank you so much for coming on the show and just giving little snippets of what lies beneath the surface of some really beautiful road milestones to Utopia and an integrated approach to energy as a company that's looking at oil, gas, hydrogen, water, uh, everything else. And your CO2 commitment is outstanding. So it's a pleasure to be working with you on these things. If you want information, please leave us a comment. If you've got questions, if we've sparked your interest, we'd love to hear from you. You can find more about Chris Way on LinkedIn. CEO and founder of Bridgeport Energy. You can hop on to bridgeportenergy.net.au. I'll put the links below. And of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can also, you know, just hit me up on nickyfogdemore.com. This is Radical Self-Belief, the Mojo Maker podcast. You're listening to episode 162 on the show. We're really pleased and thrilled to be able to have guests with so much intellect, vision, and creativity on board. It's not always easy to run a ship uh, when you don't have a map in front of you, Chris, but you've been doing that with your team for 12 years now. And I feel like this is your time to truly shine in the market. And I hope that we've created a little bit of a spotlight for that. Until next time, listeners and viewers, subscribe, like on YouTube, Vitality Coach TV, uh, on all your podcast platforms. We'd love to have you there. I would really appreciate the support, the reviews. And remember, you are the captain of your ship, the driver's seat of your life. You stay healthy, wealthy, and wise. Take care of your side of the street and hopefully you can take a couple of amazing pieces of information from this episode today 
that will have you feeling better about how you use energy and the right things are being done behind the scenes. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, Nikki. Well, thank you so much for joining, listening and engaging in Radical Self-Belief, the Mojo Maker podcast. Drop me a like, share and subscribe to Nikki Fogdemore on YouTube as well as across all the podcast channels and my website, nikkifogdemore.com for Monday Mojo exclusive emails from me each week. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST10 for 10% off any of my books when you shop online at nikkifogdemore.com. Until next time, you stay healthy, wealthy and wise and remember you are in the driver's seat of life.